little less than 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul found himself hundreds of miles from his home. Uh, He was halfway through what we would call his second missionary journey, and he found himself walking into the third largest city of the Roman Empire, the city of Corinth. And what you need to understand about the city of Corinth is is Corinth was was a prosperous, wealthy city, a a major trade, a, a port of trade. It sat on a narrow isthmus and connecting the southern part of Greece to the mainland of Greece, and it was a place where the drive for status, success permeated the people, where the idea and longing of one's rights and, and one's notoriety in society weighed on the people. It was a place that was ethnically and religiously pluralistic. There were people from all over the empire with Uh, religions from all over the empire, both mainline religions and what we would call in their day mystery religions, cults. It was a place that believed anything and everything known for its paganism. It was a place that was known for its rampant sexual immorality. To put it in maybe terms in today's world, it was a place that was a place of power, status, and trade like New York mixed with the arts and religious and ethnic pluralism of Los Angeles all simmered in the reputation of sexual morality of Las Vegas. This is the city of Corinth. And as Paul walks into the city of Corinth, far from, far from walking in hopeless, knowing that he may be one of only, quite literally, a handful of believers in the entire city, far from walking in hopeless. He walks into this city and he begins to go about what he did in most cities. He goes to the synagogue on Saturday and begins to reason and and share the gospel, this message of who Jesus is and what He's done with the people. So people come to faith in Christ. He stays there a year and a half ministering discipling these young believers. And several years will go by, and he will get word that this group of young believers, this this young church, they are struggling to fully live out what their faith in Christ looks like. Instead, they they seem to be capitulating back towards the culture of of Corinth and what they were brought up in. And as he comes to the end of his first letter to them, as, as he climbs to the top of the mountain, he identifies what may be the most critical point as to what their struggle is. Because he's received word that amongst them, some are claiming there is no resurrection from the dead. And if that is true, the fallout is immense. And he knows this, so he writes. So I invite you, church family, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you, you forgot yours, or maybe you use your phone, but it's too distracting. I invite you to use the Pew Bible in front of you. You can catch the, the numbers on the slides behind me, the page numbers. If you're using your own Bible, I can't tell you what page number 1 Corinthians 15 is. That's between you and the Lord. All right, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Here's what Paul writes. He says, now I make known to you 
I, I am reminding you, I'm telling you what I've already told you, but I'm going to tell it to you as if you've never heard it before. I'm going to remind you new. I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I preach to you. The gospel, that good news about who Jesus is, fully God, fully man, the perfect sacrifice, the one who came, born supernaturally of a virgin, who lived the life that we as sinners have failed to live, the life of flawless righteousness, who paid the price that we rightfully deserve on the cross, who rose from the grave, who offers salvation by His grace to those who will respond in faith. He said, this gospel, this is what I preach to you, in which you received, you recognized, you responded of your own free volition and will. You recognized this is the truth, you responded. And He says, in which you also stand, or, or really the better way to say it, in which you took your stand and you are continuing to stand in. Meaning you didn't just receive it, you didn't just shout an amen, but you believed it and have continued to believe and stand on this fact that you are made right with God, not on the basis of your own work or your own effort, but on the basis of Christ. And he says, by which you are being saved. Meaning that the first part of this work of salvation has already occurred. You've been justified and set right with God. Right now, you're in the middle part of this salvation where God is working out the character of His salvation in your life, and you are awaiting the final part of this salvation, the return of Christ. It says, in which you are being saved. It's being worked out within you. But then He qualifies it. If you hold fast, if you remain firm, if you are immovable to the word which I preach to you, if you really believe the actual gospel, it is going to work its way out in your life if, in fact, you really actually believe it. And he says, unless you believed in vain, meaning unless you believed without really understanding what on earth you were believing, in which case it's not that their belief is weak, but their belief is actually non-existent, or unless what they have believed for some reason isn't actually true, which goes back to verse 12. Drop down with me, look at verse 12. He says, now if Christ has preached that He has been raised from the dead, how are some of among you saying there is no resurrection of the dead? Here's the issue. Paul's reminding them because they are, they are capitulating back. In Greek culture, the idea that a human could be raised from the dead was absolute nonsense in Greco-Roman culture. The average person would have heard that and thought, that is the most bizarre, ridiculous thing I have ever heard. And so some have gone back to what they grew up in, and they're saying, ah, there's no real resurrection of the dead. And so here's what Paul says. Come back up to verse 3. He says, for I delivered to you, I, I told you authoritatively as of first importance what I also received. Meaning I came and I told you that that truth, which is the most important, I didn't waste time, I didn't, I didn't go hit other things to build you up, I gave you what is most important right off the bat, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He says that Jesus died, that Jesus died a real death, we know from the Scriptures, from his, from, uh, even from Roman historical documents, that Jesus of Nazareth was a real man who was really tried, who under Pontius Pilate was condemned to die. Prior to that death, he was scourged, 
within an inch of his life, bleeding and battered profusely. He was beaten multiple times and he was crucified, nails driven through the hands, through the feet on the cross. He was fully and completely crucified. But it's not just that Jesus died, it says that Jesus died according to the Scriptures, meaning this death, Christ's death on the cross, wasn't a surprise. You can go all the way back in the Scriptures to Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall, and God cursing the serpent says, you'll bruise the heel of my Messiah, but he will crush your head. You can fast forward to, you can fast forward to the giving of the law at and the sacrificial system at Sinai, all of which would be perfectly fulfilled in Christ. You can fast forward to a place like Psalm 22, which talks about the nails being driven in his hands and his feet, yet his bones are whole and not broken. Because Jesus died so quickly on the cross, they didn't break his bones like they would a normal person who died on the cross. You can find in unbelievable detail in a place like Isaiah 53, the fact that Jesus the God's Messiah, the suffering servant, wasn't just to die, but the reason for his death on the cross, as Paul says, is for our sins. That it's our sin, our brokenness, our rebellion that we're born into against God that, that put Jesus on the cross, our rebellion that rightfully deserves the good, just, righteous sentence of eternal death from a just, righteous judge, God himself. It says, according to the Scriptures, Jesus died. It says, and that He was buried. How do we know He really died? Because He was really buried. And contrary to one of the alternative theories out there, Jesus didn't faint on the cross and somehow wake up mutilated and battered in a tomb. He died. And He was, he was buried. He was, he was treated initially. He was wrapped and He was buried. And He wasn't buried just anywhere, because someone crucified on the cross was a common criminal, and they would just take the body down and throw it in a mass unmarked grave with a million other body parts. No, Jesus was taken off the cross, and He was placed in the tomb of a known rich man. It's not just any tomb. This tomb was known to, to the public. This tomb was a tomb anyone could go see to verify that Jesus' body was truly dead and, and actually in the tomb, Jesus was buried. And that He was raised, resurrected on the third day according to the Scripture. Jesus really did die. He really was buried in a known tomb. But on the third day, He, he was raised. He was brought back to life. He was resurrected. He walked out of the tomb, which is why in that known tomb that anybody could go visit, there was never found to be a body, and it remains empty to this day. And this wasn't a shock or a surprise. Certainly, it was a shock and surprise to those who followed Jesus. It was a shock and surprise to those who hated Jesus, but it wasn't a shock and surprise. It was according to the Scriptures. Jesus Himself said, they said, give us a sign. They said, you're not going to get another sign. Instead, you get one more sign. It's the sign of Jonah who three days and three nights in the belly of the well, so the Son of Man three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Even in a passage like Isaiah 53, after it talks about the suffering servant dying, talks about how the suffering servant will 
prolong his days, will see the many offspring. He makes intercession, things that one who is dead cannot do. Only one who is alive. All of the scriptures pointed to the fact that Christ would die on the cross, a real death, a sacrificial death in our place for our sin. But they also speak to the fact that on the third day, he would rise from the grave. And though, though the serpent would bruise his heel, he would, according to Genesis 3.15, right from the beginning, crush his head. Sin and death. And in verification of the fact that he's risen, it says, and he appeared... And that word appeared means to, he showed up physically in real reality and it could be seen by your eyes, meaning it's not a hallucination or a mirage. Your eyes can't see a hallucination or a mirage. You go, what do you mean, pastor? I see it. Yeah, but it's not because it's actually there. It's not your eyes seeing, it's your mind messing with your eyes. He appeared. He was able to be seen by actual real eyesight because he was really there. Not only that, notice it says he appeared and not they claimed to see certifiable fact, he appeared, and it says he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, the one who on the night that Jesus was betrayed, who, who hours earlier said, Jesus, I will never betray you. On that night with bitter and profane, crude language, three times denies any association with Jesus Christ, runs out weeping hiding as a broken coward, but who sees Jesus resurrected, who from that will follow Jesus' word, who will 40 days later, having been a coward denouncing Christ, will stand up in the middle of the temple and proclaim the gospel so boldly, he says to all of those listening, you're the ones who put him on the cross. He pulled no punches. He would be one who would live a life, who would suffer, who would who would face hardship, who would ultimately die on a cross and according to tradition upside down. This one who was a coward at his death is so transformed by what he sees that it alters him forever. Not only is he transformed, but it says he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, the twelve being a, a title for those eleven remaining disciples. Judas betrayed, so Peter and, and the other ten disciples who remained loyal to Christ, these, these will see Jesus. And what we know about those lives, every one of them fled when Jesus was arrested for fear of their lives. And every one of them would spend the rest of their life after seeing Jesus going where no one else had gone to share the gospel. All of them would die gruesome and horrific deaths, save one who wouldn't die a gruesome and horrific death, but if you study his life, was beaten, battered, and tattered many, many times. says not only did it change the lives of these men, but Jesus appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. By the way, you can't hallucinate 500 people on the same thing. He appeared to 500 brethren at one time. And look what Paul says. Most, most of them are still alive, though some have died. He said, if you want to know for sure, most of the people who are eyewitnesses who have seen Jesus, they're still here. Go ask them. says, then he appeared to James, James being Jesus' biological half-brother who during Jesus' three years of ministry thought Jesus was absolutely crazy, who wanted to disown Jesus, who thought he was a nutcase, but whom after the resurrection 
will never refer to Jesus as his brother, only as his Lord, and he as his Lord's slave. Because he sees that his biological half-brother was no mere half-brother, but is fully God and fully man, the Messiah. James, who would go on to be a man of such humble piety, he was known for being on his knees in prayer so much his knees turned rough like camel skin. James, a man who was martyred, who led as the most prominent pastor of the church in Jerusalem. James, who once thought Jesus was a loon, whose life forever transformed. Then he appeared to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. He appeared to Paul. Paul, who a step further than James, James just thought his biological half-brother was nuts. Paul hated Jesus. Jesus was the absolute enemy to everything that Paul stood for. We know from Paul's testimony, Paul was the rising star of his day. He was the, the, the prominent young prospect rising through the ranks religiously and politically of the Jewish nation. He was the JFK of his day. And yet he says, no, my... Jesus showed up to me a little later than he did them. I saw the Lord on that road to Damascus, and Paul's life would change. Instead of the life of power, of prestige, of luxury, of everything that would have been afforded to him had he stayed hating Christ, instead he took a life that he'll say in the next letter to the Corinthians is marked by constant pain, sorrow, suffering. And his life would end being beheaded for the fact that he was a Christian. See, here's what Paul says. He says, Jesus has appeared. How, how, how do we know he's resurrected? There's an empty tomb, and there's no other explanation for it when you see Jesus appeared to both friends and enemies, and all of these friends and enemies, everyone who believed, has led a life that makes absolutely no sense if he didn't really rise. They said, this is what I gave to you, first of all, this gospel, that Jesus died according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised according to the Scriptures on the third day, and, and that He appeared. And He said, He appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, by that sheer goodness of God, in which He acts out of His sheer goodness to give something to someone else that they do not deserve, that they cannot earn, that there is nothing they can do. This is God's grace. He says, by God's grace, I am what I am. And His grace did not prove vain, useless. But I have labored beyond more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Here's what He says. He says, I am absolutely unworthy in every way, but the reality of the gospel that Jesus is who He says He is, that He did what He said He would do, that He died on the cross, He bore my, my sin and shame, that He rose from the grave, and that when I responded to Him in faith, He rescued me from that sin. He washed me white as snow. He brought me into a right relationship with God, and, when he, and he did it all by His grace. He says, I wasn't worthy, but God's grace works. It has transformed my entire life. Not because I was worth any of it. I wasn't worthy of any of it, but because he is that good. And this is what he says, whether then it was I or they, this is what we preached and this is what you believed. So I've heard some of you are saying that there is no resurrection of the dead, but I want to remind you 
what you actually heard me preach, what my life stands in testimony to. I want to remind you what the scriptures you claim to believe actually say. I want to remind you what history objectively testifies to, that when you lay out the facts, there is no other explanation for the empty tomb other than the fact that Jesus rose from the grave and walked out never to die again. And when he did it, he said in his time prior to his death, you want to know for sure if I'm really God? Watch, I'm going to die and I will walk out on the third day and that will prove I am exactly who I say I am and I will do and can do and have done everything I say. He said, this is the reality. This is the truth. He says, but, but let's, let's go there for a second. There's a few other proofs we can walk through. We can walk through the logical proof. He says, Picking up in verse 13, he says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, if, if you're right, and this idea of resurrection from the dead is crazy, then Jesus hasn't been raised. Here's the first problem. Jesus, if, if, there's no, if it can't happen, then it, Jesus didn't rise. And if Jesus didn't rise, then our preaching is useless, is vain. Your faith is vain. It's point, I can't do anything. You're gonna trust Jesus for salvation when he's dead? It's not only this. But those of us who've preached, we're found to be false witnesses of God because we've testified against God that he raised Christ whom he didn't raise if the dead cannot be raised. He says, there's another problem. We're all a bunch of liars. Then he said, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Then if Christ has not been raised, here's the third problem. Your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. You're still separated from God. So why are you playing church? Not only that, he says, there's a fourth problem. It means any of you who've believed, who've died, who've fallen asleep, they've perished. There is no hope for them. They're experiencing eternal death, which all comes to his final deal. If Jesus didn't really rise, then those of us who've claimed to hope in Christ, we should be pitied more than anybody else, verse 19, because we have believed in absolute sham that is powerless to do any of the things that the gospel claims to do. He says, logically, it doesn't make sense. It means everything is wasted, but then look what he says in verse 20. But Christ has been raised. He goes, your assertion is foolish. It leads you to a logical place that makes no sense because here's the reality. Christ has been raised. And then he proceeds in verses 21 through 28 to lay out a theological argument where here's what he basically says. He says, Christ has been raised. And if Christ has been raised, he's been raised as the first fruits. And just as through one man, Adam, death entered and has hit everybody, so through Jesus, the risen Christ, the new Adam, according to Romans 5, Jesus, the Messiah, so all of those who are in Christ, he says in verse 23, will also be raised. And when when this moment happens where everyone who's in Christ is raised from the dead, this will be the culmination of everything God has said where all of the enemies of God will be placed in total subjection and the victory of God will not just be known. We know God wins now, but it'll be seen fully and experienced. He says this is the reality of the resurrection. It's the ultimate and the final moment of God's victory. But then he goes beyond that. He says, there's other proofs. There's proofs of experience. Drop with me, look at verse 29. And he makes this strange statement that we're not gonna get lost in today, but, but catch what his whole argument is. He goes, otherwise, what do those do who are baptized on, 
in light of the dead. If the dead aren't raised, why are you baptized in light of them? Why are we also in danger every hour? He said, let me tell you, brothers, by boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? Here's what he says. He says, if if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then there is behavior as a Christian that makes no sense. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, what am I doing in the arena at Ephesus fighting for my life against wild beasts rather than my former life in Judaism where I could be living in the penthouse suite of Jerusalem? He said, if Jesus didn't rise, why do you believe the testimony of those who have died and and follow through? Baptism makes no sense if Jesus is dead. He says, the suffering of the Christian life, it makes no sense if Jesus has died. But remember the point. Jesus has died, but he's risen. Which means these things which make no sense to the world make complete sense and total sense to those in Christ. Complete and total sense in light of reality. And he says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Be sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. He says this, he goes, stop hanging around, stop putting up with people who would fill your mind with doubts about whether Jesus really rose. Because your view of Jesus' resurrection is directly causing you, it is your, your, your questioning, your doubt, your lack of understanding of the resurrection, it is, it is allowing you and pushing you and keeping you walking in sin rather than in the righteousness of God through Christ Jesus who is alive. And then he goes, but some of you are going to ask. I love it. He's not there for instant responses, but I know some of you. You're going to come up with some smart aleck questions, so let me just answer them. He says, well, some will say, well, how is the dead raised? And what kind of body do they come? And he says, you fool. And he describes using imagery of nature to describe, well, how is the body raised? By God's sheer power. But just like in nature, a seed has to die before the tree comes up, so you won't experience the resurrection until you die. By God's power, this is how it's going to happen. And what's it going to be like? Well, flip over with me. Look at verse 44. He says, so there is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. By spiritual body, he doesn't mean non-physical. He means a, a new kind of physical flesh that is animated and empowered by the Spirit. And so it is written, and he, and he goes on, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. Here's what he says. He says, here's the reality. Here's, here's the fruit of what happens because Jesus has risen from the dead because all who are in Christ will experience the resurrection of the dead by God's sheer power. Even though you, you will face the death of this body in this lifetime, by God's sheer power, he's going to take what was weak, what was frail, what was perishable, what experiences the effects of aging, what crumbles, and he will raise it, and it will be a body of power, not weakness. It will not experience aging and frailty. It will not perish. It will not, it will not gradually lose or, 
or, or go unhealthy. It's a body that right now is, experiences the, the temptations of sin and, and shame and dishonor. This will be a body that is of glory. We know elsewhere from Scripture it'll be a body just like Jesus' resurrection body, which is why my childish hope is just as Jesus could fly and ascend into the sky, if I get a resurrection body like Jesus, maybe I can fly in eternity. It'll be like Christ's body. There is a transformation, a real perfect spirit created physically flesh body for all who are in Christ, glory, imperishable, powerful, heavenly. This is what awaits in light of the resurrection. You say, well, well, why does it matter? Well, look at verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. He said, here's the reality. All of our salvation is experiencing in part the kingdom of God today, but waiting for it to come in full. And if you want to get into the kingdom of God, you can't do it in a body like you have now. Why does this matter? Because if you want to be in the new heaven and in the new earth, you're going to need the new body that is only possible through Jesus' resurrection. Well, when's it going to happen? What's it going to be like? Oh, look with me, church family. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. And when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up. Where is your victory? O death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ who is alive. He writes them and he says, here's this moment coming church family where we know from the rest of scripture, the horn will blare, the whole earth will look up, we'll see Jesus coming down on a white horse, the armies behind him and those who are still living in Christ will be caught up in the sky but only after they've watched as all of us who have died in Christ prior, our bodies are reconstituted, are pulled out of the grave, out of the ocean, out of the crematories, out of wherever they may be, are reconstituted and in an instant, in a blinking, are completely transformed. And in this moment, this is the moment where it's all finally culminated, where no more will the sting and the pain and the suffering and the sorrow and the reality of death be present. Death will be annihilated because God has given victory in Christ Jesus. And that'd be a great place to stop. A bunch of amens, applause. Yes, Jesus is risen, He is alive. And if we stopped there, we would miss the whole point Paul writes it because he's got one more verse. Look with me at verse 58. Therefore, in light of the fact Jesus is alive because he's risen, my beloved brethren, be steadfast immovable. Meaning don't put up with doubts and false truth. That would try to shake you out of that which is assertive, which is verifiably and clearly and objectively true. 
Don't move from that place, and in not moving from that place, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Here's the whole point he drives at, church family. He says, look, he says the resurrection is not a fairy tale. It's not a myth. It's not a good idea. It is a reality. He's risen, which means all of his claims are validated. He's faithful to his word. He's able to carry out every last thing he says in his word. It's the ultimate proof that Jesus is the Messiah. And having already mentioned back in verses 29 through 34, there is a way of living that makes no sense if he's not risen. Understand, church family, he is risen, so it makes no sense for those of us who have claimed to trust in him for salvation, to live as if the resurrection didn't happen. And I am sure that most of us in this room today would go, well, pastor, I've never walked around and said the resurrection didn't happen. Right, most of us probably haven't in this room today from a mental standpoint, but have we from a lifestyle standpoint? Have we relegated the celebration of his resurrection to a one-day celebration of the year? Realize it's great we have Easter Sunday, but Jesus didn't rise from the grave so we could celebrate his resurrection one day a year. He rose from the grave to transform every last part of our life for every day of the year. There are actions that as a believer will never make sense to this world. It will never make sense to honor God's standards for how we treat each other. It'll never make sense to this world for us to love our enemies as Christ loved us. It'll never make sense to forgive certain people to this world. It'll never make sense to this world to embrace and and delight in God's standards of sexuality. We can go on down the list of everything in Scripture. It will never make sense to this world because this world is blinded. But if Jesus really walked out of the grave, He is exactly who He says He is, which means everything He says is 100% true. And it makes absolutely no sense to go, yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, Jesus is my Savior, but my life is driven by the priorities and the thoughts and the important things of this world and not Him. It makes no sense. We abound in the work of the Lord. Jesus, in the wonderful passage of Ephesians 2, describes that we were by nature children of wrath, but God in His mercy, and He saves us by grace through faith. And then there's the last little verse we often forget, which says, as the result of that salvation, we are God's workmanship, His artistic masterpiece, created new in Christ Jesus for good works. Good works don't save us, but when God saves us and transforms us, He calls us to live out the works He's planned for us to live a life fulfilling the ministry and the plan. Listen, it doesn't make sense to share the gospel if Jesus didn't rise, but if Jesus rose, it doesn't make any sense to not share the gospel. If Jesus didn't rise, it doesn't make any sense to risk anything in your life, to risk praying about, should I marry that person or should I marry at all or should I go that degree? Should I go to that college? Should I take that job? Should I set aside that? Should I give? Things don't make any sense if Jesus didn't rise, but if he rose, it transforms everything. And as we go about it, here's what he says, know that your toil is not in vain. Paul walked into a city that is every bit a reflection of the world we live in today, brothers and sisters. Yet he didn't walk in there mopey and dreary and going, I just don't know if if God can really move here. He walked in and he preached Christ and Christ crucified. And people came to faith in Christ. 
We cannot give in to the despair and the fear of what we see in the news and the way we see our world going. We cannot give in, he says, knowing if you know Jesus has risen, then no amount of you living faithfully for Christ will ever be in vain. Because he is coming back with his reward. It will never be. There will be no sacrifice you make for the cause of Christ that will be in vain. There will be no temptation that you fight the battle to overcome that's in vain. There will be no lie that this culture permeates and throws in front of you. You choose to reject, that will be in vain. There will be no sin that we abandon that is in vain. None of it will be in vain because he is risen. And our lives have meaning and purpose and satisfaction and joy and fulfillment. It's not in vain. And for some of us, those of us who've truly been saved by Jesus, knowing that He is risen, means there needs to be an examination in our life to allow the Holy Spirit to convict us, Lord, where am I living my life driven by the culture of Corinth and not constrained by the reality of your resurrection? Or my life is not constrained and pushed and altered and directed by the reality of the fact that you loved me so much, you went to the cross in my place, you rose from the grave, and you have offered this gift of salvation that you've made good on, by the way, if you've responded in faith. If you're in Christ, you already know Christ makes good on His Word. But for some of us in this room today or possibly online, we're not only denying the resurrection by our lifestyle, but we're denying the resurrection by the fact that we have never actually come to Christ and placed faith in Him for the salvation of our soul. And I want you to hear today what Paul walked through when he said, biblically, here's the point, truth of the resurrection. It's the same argument historically. Everything he said there are also If you go, ah, the Bible's a religious book. Well, no, the Bible's God's Word. It's true. But if we'll go there for a second. Everything Paul says about the resurrection, that Jesus died, that he was buried, that he, that he rose, there was an empty tomb, that he appeared, all of those are historical facts recorded in Roman history books. And the only logical explanation that can explain all of them without crossing the line of absurdity is in fact that Jesus actually rose from the grave like he said he would. Which means when Jesus says that you are born outside of a relationship with God in your sin, and the just, good, and fair wages for your sin is death, it means He really means it. And it also means when He says, for I so love you that I have come and paid the price for your sin on the cross, and if you would ask me to save you recognizing that I am, you need me to save you so you can know me as Lord, to restore, to make, make you whole, to bring you into a right relationship, to fill your life with purpose. And it means he means it. You see, church family, if all of a sudden right now my phone starts buzzing in my back pocket and it's the National Weather Service saying that right now, five miles east of us here in Pflugerville, there is a raging wildfire. It's five miles wide. It's 100 feet high. And it's going to be here in 10 minutes. Either there is a fire or there isn't. There's no other option. There either is a fire or there isn't. Either Jesus rose 
or he didn't. And if there's a fire, you and I have a choice. We can believe that word, in which case we'll see how well designed this building was for a max exodus. <laughs> or we can go, that's a bunk of hodgewash, Pastor. You're trying to do something really creative on Easter to get some YouTube clicks. I'm not falling for it. <laughs> and here's the reality. What you and I choose to do with that truth doesn't change whether it's true or not. All it'll change is whether or not we experience the joy of life or we experience the heat of the fire. Church family, friends, there is hope for today because He is alive. He is risen forevermore. May our life reflect the fact that He is alive Because if he said he would rise from the grave on the third day, here's the other truth. When he said, behold, I am coming quickly, behold, he is on his way. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you were risen. May you pierce our hearts. You know where each one of us are at this morning. There's some of us. Possibly, we don't really know. We're not in. We're not in a relationship with you. We, we, we. Maybe it's because we think we know you from church, or we, we know you from parents, or maybe we know we don't know you. Lord, may those who are in that place hear of your great love for them today, and the reality that you are alive, to bring them into that love and and to have that relationship with them, and may they respond in repentance and faith, and know your grace. Lord, for those of us who have already responded, who have responded to the reality of your grace, who have been transformed. Then where we need to be encouraged, may we be encouraged this morning, or we need to be convicted, may we be responsive to this morning. Lord, however you lead, may we respond faithfully, both in this time and as we leave this morning. Jesus, we look to you, and it's in your name I pray.